After all of the preparations, the Jewish people are finally ready to begin their journey to Eretz Yisrael. Something that should have gone smoothly, taken little time, but unfortunately, as we know, things did not work out well. The generation that went through all the incredible brachos and miracles of Yitzias Mitzrayim, the Makos, and then, of course, even the first year in the desert. But now we start reading in this week's Parsha, when they're confronted even with the first signs of challenge, even the smallest challenge. Unfortunately, they're not up for it. They crumble. And we read this week's Parsha, next week's Parsha, Shalach, Korah, Chukas, a whole succession of Parshios of such tragic and sad stories where the Jewish people just crumble at the first sight of challenge. And as we read even in this week's Parsha, shockingly, in those difficult times for the Jewish people, they long to return of all places to Egypt. Really, just such... So sad and so shocking. And the prime example of that we read about in Parakir Aleph, when we're told that initiated by the Eir of Rav, according to Chazal, it cascaded in not only them, but then eventually the Jewish people start whining and complaining, and they're desperate with a taiva, the Yivku, and they cry, Gambane Israel, the Yomru, Miyachilenu Basar, they want meat, we want meat. Zacharnos Hadagash, Arnochubim, Mitzrayim, Chinam, and the free fish from Egypt, and not only the free fish, but also they remember what else do they want to eat the Kishuim, the cucumbers, the Avatichim, the melons, the Chatsir, the leeks, the Batsalim, the onions, the Shumim, the garlic, and now Ata Nafshenu Yevesha, they complain in the desert, we're just parched, we're dry all we have is before our eyes for as long as the eye can see, as far as the eye can see mon mon mon, where's our meat where's our free fish, where's all those vegetables and condiments, amazing just shocking, shocking the crassness of it the, the, the desperation the, the lack of hakar satov the whole thing is shocking, but starting with Rashi quoting from the Sifrei, many of the classical Mepharshim particularly hone in on one phrase here, and that is that the fish is described as free. The And as the Sifrei asks, and Rashi quotes, really, is it possible? Does that make any sense? The Jews were given free fish in Egypt. The same Egyptians who couldn't be bothered to give them free straw made them get their own straw, which they were using for their servitude to build the pyramids for the Egyptians. Even that they couldn't give them for free. But fish they gave them for free? They gave them free locks, free herring? Does it make any sense? The same Egyptians... They would have given the Jews free fish. So <clears throat> Rashi and the Sifrei explained that it doesn't really mean free. And it got nothing to do with the fish per se. It's an allusion to their tremendous desire to be chinami mitzvos, free of obligation, free of mitzvos. Whatever the circumstances were in Egypt, less than ideal. But one thing for sure, they didn't feel bound by mitzvos. They hadn't gotten the Torah yet. But now, uh-oh, they may have some better conditions, they're not slaves, but they had Harsinai, they have Hashem, they have Moshe telling them what to do, they have mitzvot, they have obligations. They were so desperate to get rid of this old mitzvot, this burden, this yoke of mitzvot, that they said, we got to get out of here, please let us go back to Mitzrayim. Chinami mitzvot, nothing to do with the Egyptians didn't give them anything, it just means that they were free of obligation, Tashem. However, other Mepharshim assume that it is talking about the actual fish. <coughs> so the Ebenezer. <clears throat> excuse me, and the Ramban in his final explanation say, it's true the Egyptians didn't give them anything free, but rather it's an exaggerated term to describe the fact of the market forces. Because there was such an abundance of fish in Egypt, it cost very, very cheap. So it was as if it was free. The Ramban has two other explanations. 
both of which assume through various circumstances that in fact it's plausible that the fish was literally free for the Jewish people in Egypt, either according to the Ramban's first explanation, because of their circumstances either as slaves working among fishermen or in the gardens, that while they're working whatever field it was, anything that they were working with, or in the case of the fish that they caught in their nets, they were allowed to, while they were working, take some for free. So in fact, it's not so crazy that while they were working, they got some of those vegetables or those fish for free. Or alternatively, says the Ramban, it refers to the fact that they were Abde HaMelech. They were Paro's slaves. And even though Paro worked them to the bone, and he barely gave them anything to eat, just bread and water, <clears throat> but afterwards, when they'd finish the long day's work, and they were desperate and starving, they'd go into the fields or the gardens of other people, and they would take food, and no one would bother them, because it's the minog, it's understood that these are the king's slaves, and therefore no one could stop them, because they need, even though Paro himself wasn't giving them anything, but it was understood that they were allowed to take what they needed, so that they have the strength to keep on working for the king. So in fact, they did get free things in Egypt out of desperation, given their circumstances as Avde HaMelech. Whether one takes the approach of the Ebenezer or the Ramban in his last explanation, that it means very cheap or literally free, either way, it's quite incredible that this power, which we see from this, of selective memory. Maybe the fish were literally free. Maybe they were very cheap. But what about the terrible price that they had to pay for such cheap or free food? What about the slavery, the suffering, the persecution, murder of their children? Somehow they get all conveniently forgotten. And it's an incredible, incredible muster that we could take from this little Parsha and even this little word. Whether it's Rashi and the Sifrei, that they were desperate to avoid the Chiv of Mitzvos. Or, according to the other Mepharshim, whether it was literally free or just very cheap, but they were desperate for the physical taiva of that food that they missed. Either way, when one has a tremendous taiva and wants something desperately, it's human nature that our mind plays and our memory plays games with us, and we can manipulate and have a selective memory just to rationalize whatever it is that we desperately want. It's a harsh and painful reality, but one which you have to be aware of. It's part of the human condition. And if we can be aware of it and learn from the mistake of the Jewish people here in this week's parsha, hopefully we can all learn to avoid and be better at it in our own lives. Rabbi Norman Lamb passed away yesterday, and Rabbi Lamb, who was one of the great scholars and Orthodox Jewish leaders of the last uh, second half of the 20th century. Um, and in his memory, in his zchus, I wanted to share a drosha of his, which I actually first heard uh, from Rav Herschel Schechter, who, when he introduced this and shared this idea, referred to it as a knockout drosha that Rabbi Lamb had delivered. And it truly is a beautiful idea. One of the most well-known parts of Parshas Baloscha are the Tupsukim that are familiar to us from our davening, when the Aaron would travel, Moshe would say, God, you should get up, destroy your enemies, may your enemies be scattered, may they flee, all those who hate you should flee from you. However, when the Aaron would rest, what would Moshe say? May Hashem you rest, and may you be among the myriads and the thousands of the Jewish people. What is particularly famous and striking about these psukim is that when you look into all printed chumashim, and more importantly, in the actual Sifrei Torah that we read from in Shul, these two psukim are set apart by two inverted nuns. Two inverted nuns 
set apart these psukim, one before the beginning of Vayihib and Soaron, and one at the conclusion of the second pasuk after the words Alpha Yisrael. Out of nowhere, we just have these upside down inverted nuns, known as nunin hafuchim, and this is a special uh, din that we have as part of our Masorah, that they must be in the Torah, and therefore they're also included in printed Chomashin. Of course, the obvious question is what is going on? Why would we have anything that's not part of the psukim in the Torah? And why of all things upside down nuns? So one of the interpretations is brought down by a Kabbalistic work known as the Medrash Hanelam. And the Medrash Hanelam explains as follows. Commenting on these nuns, the Medrash Hanelam spares no ink, extols them to great detail. And among the things that the Medrash says is, Kvodo shal mamish, that these Inverted nuns are the embodiment of the honor of God. They're the foundation of the world. Wow. Moreover, non-Jews have no portion in these very special nuns. And furthermore, That one day, in our days, God will bring Mashiach and redeem the Jewish people through and in the merit of the nuns. What is going on? What is so significant about these nuns? Upside down nuns in the middle of the Torah. So the Medrash Nelam also explains, if you're going to put anything there to separate these Tzokim, why a nun and not something else, some other letter? So the Medrash Nelam connects this to the phrase in Bereshis, the end, Perak Memches, when Yaakov is blessing his grandchildren, he says, V'yidgu l'arov. He blesses his grandchildren, that they should be multitudinous, they should be as plentiful, Miloshon dag v'yidgu, as fish, as plentiful as fish. And what the Medrash Nelam is hinting at is that in fact, the word nun, the word nun in Aramaic, it means fish. Dag in Hebrew is nun in Aramaic. And evidently the Medrashanelam is hinting at that these nunim is nun miloshon fish. That in fact it's upside down inverted fish, nunim, Aramaic for fish, that is separating these psusukim. Again, the question just gets even more striking. What in the world is going on? Why upside down nuns? Why would they possibly connect it to fish? I mean, what is going on? So this really is so perplexing. And in a brilliant midrashic and flair himself, Rabbi Lamb explained as follows. What, what makes fish unique? Right? Fish swim in the water, but you know, in what way is fish, so to speak, different than all sorts of things that might be in the water? Driftwood or other things that float down the river. And Rabbi Lamb explained that what makes a fish unique is his ability to swim against the current and not just float in whatever direction the water is taking them. The nunim hafuchim, nunim which are hafuch, which are upside down, which are opposite. They can go hafuch. They have the ability to swim upstream against the tide and opposite the currents. That, said Rabbi Lamb, is what's supposed to characterize the Jewish people. The ability to go against the tide of contemporary society and surrounding culture. The authentic you must have the ability to go against the crowd even when it's unpopular. The ability to swim upstream, to dare to be different. It started with Avram Ha'ivri, he was different than the whole world, and continues until our very day. When society is in conflict with Torah values, even though it's only natural, we want to be part of that greater society. But it's in those circumstances we must swim upstream. We must become nunim hafuchim. To risk loneliness, to be different, to be unpopular, is difficult. And the desire, said Rabbi Lam, to assimilate, is actually quite natural and normal. However, this is not the role of the Jew. 
This is not the role of the Jew. The tendency to just float downstream is easy and attractive, but the Torah calls on us to be different, to be true to ourselves, and not just to be followers. These nunim, therefore, according to the Metashanelim, are associated with none less than the glory of Hashem. Because true religious distinction comes not when it's easy, but when the going gets tough and our loyalty is tested, and we stand athwart our outside culture, to be different, to go against the tide, to be alone when needed. This is the blessing that Yaakov gave his children and grandchildren. Not enough to be multiplied. You must keep your distinctiveness no matter what society you're in. And we must keep a critical stance towards surrounding culture. Accept, for sure, accept what's consistent with the Torah, but reject what is not. Confront the outside culture. Do not capitulate to it. And this, said Rabbi Lamb, is what the Medrash means, that Mashiach will come from these Nunim. Redemption will come when we are true to ourselves, no matter the circumstances and no matter how difficult and challenging it is. Vayihi ben Soa Aron, the march of Jewish history, must be characterized by the Nunim Hafuchim. If we are willing to swim upstream when necessary, we will carry that Aron not only throughout the various stops of Ben Soa Haron, but Yimirtz Hashem to the final Shuva Yisrael, to the final Uvanucha Yomar, until its final resting place when Mashiach will come. May this Divrei Torah be a, memory, a blessing for Rabbi Lamb's memory. Parakid Bays opens with the Lashon Hara that Aaron and Miriam speak about their brother Moshe. Rashi quotes Chazal that they were gossiping about the fact that Moshe had separated from his wife Zipporah. After all, they reasoned, we're also prophets, we're also Nevi'im, and we haven't separated from our spouses. After mentioning uh, this fact, and that Hashem comes to the defense of Moshe, attesting to his unique and special humility, the Torah then goes on to talk about how Kaddish Baruch Hu very much endorses the superiority of Moshe as a different type of Navi. Yes, Miriam and Aram, you are prophets, but you are not Moshe. He was different than you. And after making a somewhat vague description of what makes Moshe's prophecy somewhat unique, the Torah then says in a very famous phrase in Pasuches, Pe'el Pe'adaberbo, the Torah attests, Hashem says that there's a certain level of intimacy and directness in Moshe's nevuah and Moshe's relationship with Hashem. He speaks to Hashem, so to speak, mouth to mouth, Pe'el pe, and not in a vision or in riddles, the way other prophets receive their prophecy. This pasuk, of course, should be read in conjunction with another pasuk towards the end of the Torah in Dvarim Paraklam Adalid, Pasuk Yud. The Torah once again attests to the uniqueness of Moshe and the unique superiority of his prophecy. There'll never will be another prophet like Moshe. Hashem Panim El Panim. That he knew Hashem, he experienced Hashem, he communicated with Hashem face to face. So we have the Torah very strongly endorsing the idea and declaring the uniqueness and superiority of the prophecy of Moshe. And not only do the Psukim themselves already initiate this idea, the Ramban and other Mepharshim tease out a little bit uh, some of the specifics of the uniqueness and superiority of Moshe's Nevuah here in, his com- in their commentary to our Parsha, but the place to look, the single best place and most comprehensive presentation of this topic is actually in the writings of the Rambam. The Rambam discusses this in a number of places, but the initial and most important place he discusses it is in his Perish HaMishnayis, an introduction to Perchelik and Masechah Sanhedrin, where there the Rama very famously articulates the 13 principles of faith, what have become known as the Yud Gimli Karim, 
or even in uh, subsequent generations, the Animamin, the 13 principles that a Jew has to believe to be a faithful and loyal Jew, things we must believe, foundations of Jewish thought, theology, and belief. And even though the Ramam already in his sixth principle of faith says that we are required to believe in the phenomenon of prophecy, the Ramam says that the Ikar Amuna, the Yisod Amuna number seven, is that we are required to believe in the uniqueness of Moshe's prophecy. In other words, not only do we believe in prophecy generally, but that's not enough. We, it is so important for us to believe in the uniqueness and superiority of Moshe's nevuah that in fact it deserves and receives its own independent, separate Ikar Emunah. That's how important it is that we must believe not only in prophecy, but we must believe in Moshe's unique and superior prophecy above all others. Before the Rambam gets into some of the specifics of what makes Moshe's prophecy unique, he tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu was Avihem Shalkohanavim. He was the father, so to speak, of all prophets, those who came before him or after him. This is echoing a comment of the Sifrei in Hazinu, refers to the Rambam as Avi Hanavim. Not only that, says the Rambam, he was Nivchar Mikol Minha Adam. Moshe Rabbeinu was the greatest human being to ever live. And not only that, says the Rambam, amazingly, his understanding of Hashem was so incredible on such a high level that it actually elevated him to the point that to some extent he was no longer human, but in fact actually angelic. And his physical senses had, to a large extent, stopped working, they weren't necessary, and he had become almost like a pure intellect, or what we might refer to as kind of a pure soul, a spiritual being. The Meshachachma, in his introduction to Sefer Shmos, elaborating on working off of this Rambam, says that Moshe Rabbeinu had reached the point where he pretty much had no more free will. He had no Bechir Chavshis. Even though usually we think that that is an absolute cardinal principle of what it means to be a human being, that we have agency, that we're responsible for our decisions, says Moshe Rabbeinu, that's exactly the point. That's true for most people. But Moshe Rabbeinu was different. That's what the Rambam means when he says he was pretty much angelic, and that is that he had become so one on an intellectual, spiritual level with Hashem that there was very little separation, and therefore it was really no meaningful free choice at that point anymore. What were the four ways in which the Rambam says Moshe was in fact concretely different in his prophecy? Number one, says the Rambam, unlike other prophets who needed some kind of intermediary, Moshe Rabbeinu needed no such thing. As the Pesach says, Pel Peh, he spoke directly to God. Number two, other Nevi'im only received their prophecy when they were sleeping, so that they would have no physical senses active to interfere with the prophecy. However, Moshe was different, as we've seen, because he didn't have that many physical senses to begin with. And therefore, Moshe could receive his prophecy even during the day, even while he was awake. Number three, other prophets, despite receiving the prophecy through an intermediary, the process of prophecy was so incredible and so terrifying that they were almost to the point of actual death from the experience. Says the Ramam, the sheer terror of the prophetic experience, even with the intermediary, was to such an extent that the prophets usually almost died and lost almost all their physical strength from the, from the experience. However, Moshe was completely different. And for him, Pel Pe'adaber, it was just as casual, just as intimate, and just as normal and not scary at all, like talking to a friend, and therefore Moshe experienced none of that the way other prophets did. Fourth and finally, says the Rambam, other Nevi'im could prepare and prepare and make themselves perfected and perfected, but even then they can only hope and wait that Hashem would initiate Nevuah with them. But other prophets could not initiate Nevuah, a prophetic experience, on their own. Moshe here too, says the Ramam, was different and unique. Moshe could initiate and start the conversation with God. He could initiate a prophetic experience whenever he wanted, and basically he was therefore at, at a nearly constant prophetic experience. These are the four very specific and concrete ways that the Rambam delineates Moshe's prophecy was different, unique, and superior to all 
other prophets. The Rambam echoes this in his Hilchos Yisodia Torah, in Perek Zayin, Halachavav, as well as in Hilchos Yisodia Torah, Perches, Halachos Aleph through Gimel, where he emphasizes that the reason we believe in Nevoas Moshe and its superiority and its uniqueness was not because of any of the many miracles he did for us when we were in the desert, rather because we saw with our own eyes and heard with our own ears Hashem speaking to him on Har Sinai, and that at all surprisingly, the Ram Menachos Tshuva, Paragimel Halachaches, includes in the category of Apikaris and someone who has no chelik and Olam Haba, someone who denies Nevuas Moshe. There's a fascinating debate as to when this unique status of Moshe took hold. Was it already at the Sned? Did it have to wait till the Torah? But that will have to be for another discussion. And the Torah tells us once again about the obligation to offer the carbon Pesach now in the desert. We are told that people who are tame, people who are ritually impure, are exempt and excluded from the carbon pesach. If you, only if you're tahor can you bring and eat the meat of the carbon pesach. But people who are tame cannot participate in this mitzvah. In that context, we read a very powerful and poignant pasuk in Perktes, pasuk Zion, where a group of people who were tame who wouldn't be able to participate in the carbon pesach approach Moshe and they complain. Why should we be deprived of offering the Karman Pesach at its designated time? And as a result of this question and complaint, Moshe Rabbeinu says he needs to consult with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and eventually the response that is given to Moshe and communicated to the people and to the Torah and has now become part of Jewish halacha experience in the Torah is the notion of the institution of Pesach Sheni, the idea that people who are Tameh or perhaps some other technical exemptions and therefore can't participate in the carbon Pesach at the right time, which is usually, of course, offered on Erev Pesach and then eaten that night at the Seder. So people in such a category are allowed to then, one month later on Yud Dalet Iyar, bring a stand-in kind of carbon known as the Pesach Sheni. What is really interesting is that going back to the initial request that these people had in the complaint, Lama Nigara, so Rashi actually quotes that they weren't just complaining, but in fact they had an actual suggestion, which as is understood by Rav Moshe Feinstein in his Sefer, Darash Moshe, was basically as follows. They were saying, listen, we understand that we can't actually participate in the Karban because we're Tameh, but why can't we become part of a Chabura, which together with other Tahor people, bring the carbon, and then even though we can't actually offer the carbon, that'll be done by the Kohanim, and we can't even eat from the carbon that night at the Seder, because we're Tameh, but the people who are Tahor, who are part of our Chabura, who signed on and brought the animal along with us, they'll eat from the carbon. Fascinating that that would be their suggestion. However, Rav Moshe Feinstein asks, there again in his Sefer, Darsh Moshe, it's nice that they had a suggestion, right? We always say, don't just complain, but offer a, a suggestion. So it's good that they had a suggestion. But on some level, it really makes no sense, even as a hypothetical suggestion. Because even if that was feasible, which it could be theoretically, nevertheless, says Ramosha, it would not have helped or benefited the Tame people whatsoever. What would they have gained from that? The mitzvah is to eat the carbon Pesach. And that they fully acknowledge, and it's unquestionable, that they cannot do. That's explicitly written in the Torah. A Tameh person cannot participate. So what would they have gained by signing on to and joining a Chabura of Tahor people themselves, the Torah people who would eat from the meat of the carbon? That doesn't help or benefit the Tameh person whatsoever. So why would that have been their suggestion? In response to this, 
Moshe Feinstein suggests that what was really going on was a certain an attitude or mentality that these people were exhibiting, which is not only deserving of our respect, but more importantly, deserving of our imitation. That is to say, it is an incredible lesson, not only about them, but more importantly, it's instructive for us. Says Ramoshe, even though it's true, they would not have been Yotze whatsoever, the Tamei people. Says Ramoshe, it's true that they weren't going to be Yotze, but they loved the mitzvos so much that they wanted to have some connection, even if minimal, even if it ultimately didn't give them any credit, but they loved the mitzvos so much they wanted to have a connection to it. In other words, what Ramoshe is bringing to the fore is a question of attitude. Do we view mitzvos as merely obligations and duties which, oh, we have to accomplish? Nebuch. And therefore, if it turns out we are exempt from something, we're excited, or at least breathe a sigh of relief and just move on with our day? Or is our attitude completely different? Do we genuinely love mitzvos? Do we appreciate the privilege to do mitzvos? And then, if we have that attitude, if it turns out that we're exempt or excluded from a certain mitzvah, we're going to do our best to, so to speak, overturn that. And even if we can't overturn that exemption or exclusion, we'll still want to participate or connect in some way, in somehow. Says Ramosha, that is the lesson that we should take from the request of the Tamei population. That is the lesson of the Parsha of Pesach Sheni, that if a person truly loves mitzvos, then he'll want to participate and be connected to mitzvos in any way possible. Even if they're not going to ultimately get the credit for the mitzvah, as the Tamei people wouldn't have, but they'll still want to do anything they can to connect to the world of mitzvos, to a specific mitzvah. Ramosha actually goes on to give some concrete or specific examples of where we can ourselves have this attitude. He says, as one example, let's say a person for health reasons cannot have the full measurement of kazayas of moror. However, he says, perhaps if it's healthy and safe for you, you could have a smaller amount. Now it's true that a smaller amount, not eating the full measurement, the full shiur of a kazayat, you're not yotze. Okay, so you're not yotze, and it's not even your fault, because you have an exemption, because it's not healthy for you. But so what? If you really love the mitzvah, instead of just saying, oh, I'm exempt and you know, just moving on, you'll do your best in any way you can to connect in some way. And we can imagine all sorts of other examples where a person can't do a mitzvah or he's exempt from a mitzvah because of all sorts of considerations that might be beyond his control. But if we truly love mitzvahs, A, we'll be pained by that exemption, and B, we'll do whatever we can to connect in any way possible. And Moshe adds one final point, which is that Rashi, in the continuation, uh, points out that this parsha, this section in the Torah, this mitzvah of Pesach Sheni, was always intended to be part of the Torah, and should have been therefore just given over in the Torah by, like Moshe, by Moshe, excuse me, like all the other legalistic and mitzvah sections of the Torah. How come we eventually only get this story, excuse me, this mitzvah Pesach Sheni emerging out of the story and the dialogue between the Tamei population and Moshe? And says Rashi, it's true, it could have been just given by Moshe like the rest of the Torah and all the other mitzvahs. But, because these people had such an incredibly virtuous and admirable attitude of love of Torah, of love of mitzvot, and they wanted to participate so badly, as a reward for that, they end up having the zechus that their story is written into the Torah, and they become the cause through which the Torah reveals a mitzvah. The mitzvah would have been revealed anyway, but instead of just being presented as a dry legal uh, mitzvah and obligation, it is presented through this story as a highlight and a lesson to all of us that we should imitate them and truly love the mitzvahs that we do.
The episode of Miriam and to a lesser extent her brother Aaron gossiping or speaking about Moshe and his wife is discussed extensively in Perak Yudbet in Parshas Baaloscha. And we know that despite the fact that it's not exactly and explicitly clear from the Psukim what exactly was wrong with the way Miriam and Aaron were speaking, but according to our tradition, we have understood that they were in violation of the prohibition of Lashon Hara. What about it was Lashon Hara? What aspect of what they were doing was Lashon Hara? So in fact, my good friend Rav Daniel Feldman in his remarkable work on, uh, contemporary work on the laws of Lashon Hara, so he has a whole chapter where he discusses all the different commentaries and what they understand about the nuances of the Miriam story, but suffice it to say, as much as there is in that direction, bottom line is we do see Miriam, unfortunately, despite her overall righteousness, as a paradigm for the violation of Lashon Hara, and the importance of recognizing this, of course, is highlighted in a pasuk that comes in Devarim, in Perch of Dalid, where we are told, Zohar es asher asa Hashem alokecha lemiriam. But Derek Patsayeskum we read in our parsha about the tsaras, the punishment she got with tsaras, and in Devarim we are told we always have to remember, Zohar, we must remember what happened to Miriam. And none other than the Ramban, no less than the Ramban, Ban thinks that this is actually a mitzvah say da'oraisa, to remember what happened to Miriam, which presumably means to highlight the importance and the sensitivity to the laws of Lashon Hara. Of course, uh, the Chavetz Chaim in the book by that very name uh, put perhaps more mental energy and time into this prohibition than anyone before or after, and we've all been much more sensitized to this prohibition based on the incredible and trailblazing work of the Chavetz Chaim. What exactly is the problem with Lashon Hara. What is wrong about it? You know, we know it's wrong. You know, in Israel now, uh, there are masks that are being made for the corona. You know, Lashon Hara, Loma Dabere Lai, which is all very good. Don't speak Lashon Hara to me. I don't speak Lashon Hara. That's all good. But what exactly is the problem? So if one looks carefully in the words of Rabbeinu Yonah, and to a lesser extent, you see this in the Rambam in Hilchos Deos, Perik Zion. But I think it's even more clear in the Rabbeinu Yonah and the Shari Chua and Shar Gimel. It's clear, I think, that there are actually two different aspects, two problems with, with Lashon Hara, two reasons to be usher. Number one, says Rabbeinu Yonah, is the damage that your gossiping could have to the other person you're speaking about, to the subject of the Lashon Hara. It could be material, concrete damage. Maybe uh, they lose a job or who knows what based on what you are gossiping about. Or it could be, as Rabbeinu himself says, it could be boshes. It could be embarrassment that you're sharing this unflattering information about him. It could hurt him personally. It could embarrass him, even emotionally. And that is the nezek, the damage you're doing to a person is a reason enough for it to be prohibited. But there's a second dimension which Rabbeinu also adds, which seems to be independent and irrespective of any impact or damage on the subject it's simply wrong to do it. It's bad midos. It's bad form. We shouldn't be that kind of person who gossips about other people. It's simply not appropriate per se, even, as I say, irrespective and separate from any damage that might be impacted. Nevertheless, despite the fact that it's clear that in most, most cases, Lashon Hara is Usr and in almost all the cases, we can find either one or both of the reasons I just mentioned for being usher. It's always bad midos. It may, very often is actually hurting people. Nevertheless, many poskim, starting with the Sefer HaCharedim and others, note that there's a major uh, carve-out, a major exception to the rule. And that is, if the Lashon Hara you're speaking, which may be actual Lashon Hara, but if you're doing it litoeles, to help a third party, the reason you're gossiping to somebody about that person is because 
that person needs to know about it, it would benefit them, it's Latoeles, then in fact it's not prohibited. This is understood based on the juxtaposition in the Pesachlose, which is considered the halachic primary source of the prohibition, not to be a talebearer, and yet the very same Pesach continues, Now, Losamod, we know, means that you can't stand idly by if you could help somebody and save someone and you don't do it, that is itself a violation. And that's not only to save their life, of course, but even to save them in other uh, less dramatic ways, from financial damage and otherwise. If you could help and you don't do anything, that's a violation of losamod. Well, that's fine and good, but what is that doing in the same pasuk as loselech rachil? What does one have to do with the other? So as I mentioned, the Sefer HaCharedim, the Chavetz Chaim, others understand that the juxtaposition of these two ideas is exactly the point we mentioned. That when is Lashon Har Asr? Only usually, only typically, only generally. But if it's a situation in which you need to speak to Lashon Hara so that you can avoid Lo Samro Damriacha, so you can help a third party, then it's absolutely mutter. Perhaps we would even say a mitzvah. Rabbi Hanan Wasserman has a nice essay in the Kovet Aros where he makes this very point that it's not simply that the prohibition of Lashon Hara is nidche, but more than that, it's simply mutter. There is no prohibition when it's being done litoeles. This has many, many ramifications, which are quite complicated and extensive. But just to mention, just to think about it, I mentioned already the issue of business deals. Uh, somebody, you know, you know, someone calls you and says, you know, uh, I'm thinking of going to business with such a person. I'm thinking of buying a house from such a person, anything like that. And you have information, which, whoa, I don't know if I would do that. I, I have experience with that person. I know the person is shady, maybe crooked. You can't trust them. Well, then you have a mitzvah to tell the person who asked you about it, because that would be Latoelis. And of course, the most famous and extensive example where this is discussed is in the realm of Shiduchim, right? If you know about somebody, uh, something about somebody which is quite relevant to a prospective spouse that they have not themselves disclosed, you get called and say, you know, what do you know about this person? I'm interested in dating them. I am dating them. My son or daughter is dating them, etc. So there... You know, there could be many reasons why it's actually mutter or even a mitzvah to share negative information. And the post scheme have extensive discussions about this from Rav Moshe Feinstein, the Stipler, the Chazanish, and Rabbi Feldman Sefer, he quotes original tshuvas and writings from Rav Hashel Shechter and Rabbi Willig. Many, many poskim uh, discuss this. Rav Yashiv, many, 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 many other have tshuvas, have discussions, Rav Zoberstein, about these issues. And they're very, very complicated. But when there are real issues, it could be mental health or stability, fertility, genetic issues, and other things, it's certainly possible that it's not only mutter, but maybe even a mitzvah to share the information. The stakes are high, the halachas could be complicated, absolutely worth asking a shayla. But I'll just conclude with the stirring words of Rav Sternbach and his Shuvas Van Hagas, who says, not only is it a big of error to speak Lashon Hara, but it's perhaps an even bigger of error to not share information, to not share Lashon Hara, if that's what the halacha would require.